Eye on Arabia, reporting, analysis, and the occasional surprise from author and Middle East specialist Joseph Browdy. America Abroad Media is honoring Saudi media personality Turkiya Dakhil this year for his contributions to civil society, religious tolerance, and the cause of women in his native Saudi Arabia and the Gulf. I had the chance to interview Turkey and co-produce this segment about women in the Gulf states, which was broadcast a few months ago on Public Radio International's monthly documentary series, America Abroad. I'm Barbara Bogave, in for Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Women's Rights After the Arab Spring on America Abroad. From women in Turkey, we turn now to Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, oil-rich countries with Bedouin roots. Historically, women's status in the area lagged behind that of North Africa and the Arab countries of the eastern Mediterranean. And while there's still a long way to go, Turkey al-Dakhil says some progress has been made. He's a prominent Saudi media personality and booster of women's causes. For years, he's hosted a Larry King-like talk show on the pan-regional TV network Al-Arabiya. We hear him now speaking in Arabic through an interpreter. Women have made considerable headway in Saudi Arabia toward achieving their rights. We're in need of much more, but taking stock of the recent past, it means a lot that the king appointed 30 women to serve in the Legislative Council, as well as a woman to serve as the Minister of Information and Education. Saudi Arabia has a long history of gender segregation in the workplace. Age-old traditions have restricted women's professional advancement. And for decades, the country's religious police have strictly enforced the wearing of the veil in public spaces. So the appointment of 30 women to the legislature and the rise in the prominence of women in the Saudi private sector represent major steps forward in the kingdom. And giving a woman control over the educational system is an especially bold step. For decades, it's been dominated by Islamist hardliners who opposed women's advancement. Turkey al-Dakhil explains. There's a powerful political stream in Saudi Arabia that's not at all pleased with these improvements in women's rights, which they view as westernization. The reforms are opposed by extremists in Saudi Arabia, as well as other Arab and Islamic states. And, by the way, the extremists aren't all men. Some women are also trying to block the new opportunities in the offing for their own gender. But the education minister, Noura Al-Fais, has managed to do a lot in response. And today, 60% of university and high school students are girls. Dakhil has parlayed his media notoriety to create a think tank in Dubai called the Al-Masbar Center for Studies and Research, as well as a publishing house whose content helps advance civil society in the Arab world. Last year, Al-Masbar asked 10 female scholars from Beirut to Benghazi to put together a book on Arab women after the Arab Spring. Their research traces a disturbing divide when it comes to the shifting status of women across the region. Turkey al-Rakhil. While women in the Gulf states are making progress in winning their rights, from education to public life, in the countries that went through revolutions since 2011, like Tunis, for example, where women had achieved a very high position in society, we find the status of women to be regressing. The Islamist groups that have come to power oppose the cause of women, and we see things moving backwards for women, whether in Tunisia or Egypt or even in Yemen. Turkey al-Dakhil takes this problem personally. He's the father of three children, two sons and one daughter named May, now studying in Canada. 
Hello, my name is uh, Maid Dakhil, and my dad is uh, Turkey Al Dakhil, and I'm currently in grade nine. My family, and uh, this is all because of my father, we're open-minded, even though we're Saudi, and we still do the same things that other Saudi people do, which is to practice our religion, our prayers, and so on. We do the same thing, but it's just in an open mind. My father have raised me to be obviously respectful and so on, like any parent would do that. But he also raised me to not consider that just because I'm Saudi and people have that image of a Saudi woman that I can't express my feelings or my talents and so on. And honestly, when you have someone by your side, it's better and it gets easier. And I think that person who's on my side is my dad, but both my parents. <laughs> May's father is painfully aware that when she comes home to Saudi Arabia, she still won't enjoy the same rights as her brothers. I want my daughter not just to get the same opportunities as her older and younger brothers, but rather to achieve even greater rights, because women are subject to oppression in many places, and they need an opportunity to fight that oppression. As we learned from Turkey al-Dakhil, there's been some notable progress in the works for women in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf. While countries such as Tunisia and Egypt had taken big social, political, and constitutional strides on women's issues, the turmoil of the revolutions has now jeopardized the physical security and safety that women used to enjoy. Is there something to be said for the incremental changes in women's rights in the Gulf kingdoms, in contrast with the tumult of the revolutions in so many parts of the Middle East? America Abroad's Joseph Browdy explores this question, starting out not far from Saudi Arabia, in the Emirate of Kuwait. Like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait has traditionally rejected the principles of gender equality. But the situation in Kuwait has been changing, gradually as Joseph Browdy reports. This is the sound of one Kuwaiti woman after another swearing in as members of Kuwait's elected parliament after a landmark decision in 2005 granting women the right to vote and run for office. It happened seven years before the Arab Spring revolutions of 2011. It was a big campaign, government and NGOs together, and the vote passed through the parliament. That's Nada Al-Mutawa, a political scientist and activist for women who heads the Department of Strategic Studies at Kuwait University. She says the campaign for women's suffrage had been going on for decades, and what finally made it happen was a push from the country's ruler, known in Kuwait as the emir. Women since the early 60s have been trying to get their votes. They had a major ally in 2005, a personality who believed in these rights, the current emir, Sheikh Sabah Lahmed. He believed in it as a person. He's influential on voters in Kuwait, on the conservative families in Kuwait. And the vote passed through the parliament. And that was the year where women became part of the, the only elected parliament in the area. During the Arab revolutions of 2011 and 12, every government that collapsed was a so-called military republic, while all of the region's eight dynastic states, the kingdoms of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and Morocco, and the five Gulf sheikhdoms, weathered the storm intact. Arab dynasties, grounded in the history and folklore of their societies, 
tend to enjoy greater legitimacy with their populations, and in recent years they've also seen increased social and political reforms. There is a common thread that's often discussed now that Muslim countries which had kings in the Middle East have done better off than those who didn't. Well, for the moment they are. Leila Ahmed is a Harvard Divinity School professor and author of A Quiet Revolution, The Veil's Resurgence from the Middle East to America. They're stable countries, for one thing, and hopes for women are better there, and better in terms of moving forward. There's things that uh, still exist in Egypt and Tunisia and elsewhere that uh, Saudi women don't have the right to do, you know. They still can't drive. Egypt and Tunisia have been driving since the early 20th century. Though kings and emirs don't run for re-election, they do face pressure from their populations. And over the past decade, through satellite television and the internet, women in the monarchies have seen greater freedoms elsewhere and more aggressively demanded them back home, a more subtle, slow-paced form of Arab Spring. Kuwait's Nada al-Mutawa. You know, when I think about uh, the changes that we went through since 2005, I think we did have a, a mini um, sort of a spring or a lot of changes that went on, the women and parliament and laws and uh, the freedom of speech and the freedom to protest. We got a lot of changes uh, since then. Meanwhile, the revolutions of Egypt and Tunisia saw skyrocketing violence against women. But even those countries remain better off than civil war-torn Syria or Libya, where massive civil strife may well grow into civil war. Leila Ahmed. Women, of course, are subject to rape, and when men are killed, women and children suffer in, in any wars. Both sexes suffer, but I, it seems that uh, women are, are certainly more vulnerable, the children are more vulnerable, and if, if a man is killed, the family loses his income, so the costs for women are huge in, in wars. Revolutions often start out with the promise of greater liberty for women. But after high hopes fade, instability and insecurity take their toll. The Arab Spring may yet bring women forward, but for now at least there's a feeling that the kind of gradual reform one finds in Arab dynasties is preferable. For America Abroad, I'm Joseph Browdy. You've been listening to Eye on Arabia. If you'd like to learn more or get in touch, follow me on Twitter at J-O-S-E-P-H-B-R-A-U-D-E or browse www.josephbrowdy.com. On my homepage, you'll also find a link to my weekly podcast in Arabic, Risalat New York, as well as links to books, articles, and upcoming events. Music